This episode touches on the topic of suicide, which some listeners may find upsetting. So if you need to, skip this one. Welcome to the Secrets of Confident Women podcast, where you'll learn all the best tips, tricks, and practical techniques for building the confidence levels you've always wanted. With inspiring interviews, real-life examples, and game-changing insights, this podcast is for women who know that mastering the skill of confidence is one of the most important things they'll ever do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode. This is Jodie, and today we are covering a topic that comes up so often with many of the women I work with in my coaching programs and really in all areas of the work that we do. And that topic is perfectionism. Now, perfectionism is often defined as the need to be or appear to be perfect and is often seen as a positive trait to have. And most of us can be perfectionists from time to time. However, it is not the same thing as you know, striving to be your best or working hard to reach your goals. Chronic perfectionists need to achieve perfection constantly and it can lead to negative thoughts or behaviours and excessive self-criticism that actually make it harder to achieve their goals. Plus, it may also cause stress, anxiety or even depression as they strive for perfection out of feelings of inadequacy or failure. Now, when I work with women on their perfectionism, it often shows up as procrastination as they don't even want to begin a task or follow a dream unless they know they can do it perfectly or that they have no life balance because they put so much pressure on themselves to be perfect in all areas of their life. So to talk about this topic today, I am thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Margaret Rutherford, who is one of the leading experts on perfectionism, especially how it can mask depression. She has been a psychologist in private practice for over 25 years, is the host of the popular podcast called The Self Work, and is the author of the book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, which discusses the confusing and overlooked phenomenon of people who are depressed but masked by creating a veneer of a perfect looking life. Today, we are talking about whether our perfectionism is destroying our confidence. So Dr. Margaret, welcome to the Secrets of Confident Women podcast. Thank you, Jody. I, I, I kind of wondered as I was sitting there listening to you, I thought, well, um, am I confident enough to be on this program? <laughs> you are. I know. We've had, interesting. We have so many people that even when we contact them to say, would you like to be on the, they go, oh, I don't think I'm actually very confident, but sure. But, you know, it is that thing. We all, we all do seem to you know, maybe not give ourselves enough credit for the confidence that we do have or how we have been by people, you know, around us. I'll have a, I'll tell you a quick story. Many years ago now, probably 20 years ago, I was invited by one of the drama teachers who had um, directed me in a play to meet her MFA class and to join in on a class and make a long story short, I went, I was totally, totally intimidated by these younger people who had been in 90 shows and I'd been in nine, you know, and I called her on Monday morning. I called her on Monday morning. I said, Amy, I can't do this. I've just, I'm out of my league. And she started laughing and she said, you know, I have the graduate students over to my house on Sunday night. And I said, really? She said, yes. And she said, were your ears burning last night? Which, you know, that means they were, you know, did you know we were talking about you? And I said, no. And she just started laughing. She said, they found you intimidating. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's it. See, we just don't see, we don't recognize often what we the we're having around us on people and how we're seen. And I sure. talk about that with clients. They say this, that, and the other. And I say, so what is actually the evidence? Where's the evidence of that actually living in the outside world? And often they can't produce a, a stick of evidence of, you know, why they they think, or, you know, I've got a lot of client that I'm working with. And she's just got this new promotion and she's all, and she keeps saying, I don't think I'm performing. And I say, so what does your boss say? And she said, oh, oh, he says I'm doing fabulous. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so we've got to change your perception and your mindset because the outside world was telling you the evidence is saying how great you're, you're doing. 
And it's only well, all I know is I, I went on and took the class and it was a great class and I learned a lot and I played the mother and they said, it's so nice to have someone play the mother that actually is old enough to be my mother. <laughs> oh, wonderful. All right. Well, why don't you tell us to get started a little bit about yourself and your career? Sure. Well, I didn't take the most traditional route to becoming a psychologist. I actually, in my 20s, was a jingle singer. I sang radio wow. and TV commercials. Yeah, that's I sat right in front of a microphone for hours every day and sang with either a group of people or a small group. And then I sang at night. I tried jazz. Well, I mean, I tried rock and roll and I was terrible. And so I ended sort of singing jazz standards and I jumped up and down a lot. And no, I'm amount of confidence could make me sing rock and roll very well. So I did that for many years, about eight or nine years and made a living at it, which, you know, is the is the template for a musician. If you can actually not wait yes. tables and sing, that's pretty good. And so what I found, however, was that the lifestyle of the musician was not something that was bringing out the best in me, frankly. My life was very chaotic. I had some really abusive relationships going on. Unfortunately, I married one of those people. And I thought, you know, I've, I've got to get out of this. So I had started volunteering at the Battered Women's Shelter in Dallas. Loved that work. And I heard about this thing called music therapy. And I thought, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I went to a, a well-known university in Dallas. I plopped all the money I had down in the world on the first year. And then by my second and third year, I was a graduate assistant. And I got a, an, a degree, basically, in music therapy. But my last semester, I interned at a psychiatric hospital. And I had a lot of therapy myself. And I looked around at these people and I thought, no, 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 no. I don't want to be a music therapist, although I really value it. I want to be a psychologist. Wow. So I had to take a whole nother year, get a, because I was not a psychology major in college and study and get my basic study, more of more psychology. And so then lo and behold, I think really out of curiosity, Right. I got into a really good program. I think they said, who is this person who is a jingle singer who wants to be a psychologist? You know, it's just is pretty odd. Yes. So they let me in and I loved it. And I have been doing it ever since. But it took me nine years to make the decision to get out of music and to go into music therapy and then get that training. And it was a long nine years. I saw a lot of people's lives getting really solidified. They had buying homes and having yeah. children and all this kind of thing. And it was, it was difficult. There was a lot of insecurity there, but it, it, you know, it has turned out to be something that I absolutely am passionate about and have, have so enjoyed it. And I've gotten to do a little singing too. So yeah. that's been fun. Yes. Fabulous. Isn't it funny how we, I know we sometimes, we're on this pathway, but we feel like we're lagging behind. I know I, tra I traveled extensively after I left uni in my sort of mid-20s and was away from Australia as such for about five and a half years. Wow. And of course, I came, when I came home, it was the same. I felt like I was a couple of steps behind a lot yeah. of established when people have been working in different careers and meeting partners and getting married and things. And I was, I was well behind that, but it all works out. It all works out. It so does work does, out. So what does confidence or being a confident woman mean to you? Seeing as this is the confident podcast. <laughs> well, I have a particular definition. In fact, I've done several of these, um, these kinds of podcast interviews, which I do love. Yes. And I'm often asked at the end of them, if you had one thing as sort of the thing you believe, what is that? And, and what I say is that you're, and I believe it's actually the definition of true confidence anyway, that um, you have your strengths and you have your vulnerabilities. And when you, when you can be aware and identify and, and, and affirm your strengths, and then you can accept your vulnerabilities, then really 
neither one of those defines you. I've yes. frequently said, you know, I have three letters after my name. That's PhD. That's I'm that makes me proud. I'm very happy with that. I've also been married three times. Yes. Two of those marriages being no, during those chaotic <laughs> music years. The other one has lasted for 31. So I think I finally figured something out. But they're both facts about me, right? Yeah. Um, now, I along the way, I would, in fact, when I moved to Arkansas from Texas, I said, oh, I'm never going to tell anybody I'm on my third marriage. I would never do that because I lacked that sense of confidence. I lacked that sense of being okay with having made mistakes and having failed. And I very well remember the day that I chose to do it. I guess maybe I was making a step toward confidence in that there was a woman on the sofa and who was a patient of mine and she was getting a second divorce and she sort of looked up at me with shame in her eyes and said, but you wouldn't know what that felt like. Right. And I took a big breath and I said, well, you're actually about to join a club I've been a member of for a long time. And she looked at me. She said, really? Yeah. I said, yes, really. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of confidence gives you freedom. It does. And I think the more freedom you have, then the more you can go from situation to situation to situation. And you're not having to hide anything. Yes. Well, you're hiding some things. You know, you're sticking your stomach in. You've got your spanks <laughs> on, you know, right? But, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not having to act a certain way. You're just yourself. And that gives you a lot of flexibility and a lot of freedom yeah because you don't feel like you're going to be sort of found out or Mm -mm. or you're going to slip up or you're trying to hide this part of yourself which is just and isn't it interesting how when you do start being vulnerable and sharing the the weaknesses or the vulnerabilities or the things we're not as just plain old mistakes people (laughs) people around you go me too and oh yeah well I'm just like it just gives that permission to be totally okay with the things that we do feel secretive about or vulnerable about or that brings us into some sort of non-acceptance part and we can just be okay with that and yeah as you're right it's the freedom that that you can you can feel from that is so much much nicer way to live (laughs) yes it is yes it is and you know it's taken me a while to get there for sure um but it's something that is i gosh I certainly hope, you know, I'd stay, I know it's going to stick around. I'm, yes. I'm 66 years old now. I don't think it's going anywhere. Good. That's good. When, so when are you, Margaret, the most confident version of yourself? I really had to think about this question because <laughs> I, I, I think it's such an interesting question. And I, I think it's probably for a long time it was in session because I figured out that if I let go of my ego, that part of me that needed to do the best session I'd ever done or say something really pithy and something meaningful, you know, that I was missing the whole point and that I was all wrapped up in my own ego. And so I think when I am the most confident, it's when I'm aware that I have put my ego to the side and that I'm just in that moment listening. I'm in that moment responding. I'm in that moment not evaluating my own performance. Yes. And when I really think about that, then how that generalizes to my personal life is something very similar. When I'm not self-conscious, Yes. Which sometimes I'm self I'm as self-conscious yes. as anybody. Um, but what I'm not, when I manage to be really just kind of in that moment, whether I'm cooking or whether I'm, you know, talking with a friend or whether I'm uh, no matter what at the grocery store. I mean, yes. it's just sort of a, you know, just a stillness and a calmness that mindfulness and meditation will certainly teach you. And I think that's probably when I'm most my most confident. Yeah, wonderful. It's like I actually interesting. I I have panic disorder. I have performance anxiety. Yeah. And so I've really had to work on that sense of just being in that moment. And sometimes I still have it. I, I wish I could tell you, oh, no, you know, that's been put to bed a long time ago. But it really hasn't. And it started during those years of chaos. And I know why it started. And yet it's had some tentacles into the present that have been hard to to kind of unlatch. And and yet right now it's it's the, my take toward it is sort of like, well, in fact, I call it Bob. 
because I, I can feel Bob in my legs. I can feel when Bob is present and I go, because my legs start feeling like they're going to shake, you know? And I said, well, Hey Bob, why did you decide to come in today? And you know, you're here. And so I got really, I get really focused on what's going on around me. So I don't focus too much on Bob and I don't empower him too much. And then sometimes Bob goes away and if Bob doesn't go away, then I leave and take some breaths of fresh air and yeah. get myself calmed down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's really a, that's a great technique to actually name it. Like we do a lot of that in the coaching I do, that we that we name, you know, negative Nancy in the head or we mm-hmm. name that, you know, imposter syndrome woman that comes and starts talking. So it's like a separation type thing. It's like it's a detachment. It's not mm-hmm. me. It's this it's this thing and we go oh you're back again okay <laughs> let's deal with you sort of thing yeah yeah it's a great technique, it's a great technique. i learned it from uh, there's a writer named reed wilson an author who his whole practice is in anxiety and he teaches a lot about that so yeah fabulous so let's get on to your book which you kind of oh. sent me and i love thank you perfectly hidden depression so in the foreword of your book jennifer marshall writes that it contains the stepping stones to walk away from the isolating, painful grip of perfectionism and embrace self-love and acceptance. So what impact do you think perfectionism has on our confidence? Like, is it destroying it? Well, again, and we're getting sort of, I think this mixes in with the next question that you sent me. We're so kind to send me, by the way, where really it depends on, the type of perfectionism that you engage in, whether it's whether it's destructive or not. The stepping stones she's talking about are actually the exercises in the book, as well as some stages of treatment. But basically, constructive perfectionism is something that is really based on a sense of fulfillment. You know, you your confidence can be built because you do feel very uh, satisfied, fulfilled, Uh, It's a very process oriented kind of feeling where if you do make a mistake or you do falter, you kind of go, wow, what did I learn from that? And, you know, maybe I'm not going to do as well as I did last time on this, but that's okay. I'll learn. And it's, it's the difference between the swimmer who is trying to beat her best time in the pool and the swimmer who constantly has her eye on the next lane and is wondering if she's going to win, you know, that kind of perfectionism where you're incredible, you're only goal oriented. It's not about fulfillment. It's about winning. It's about meeting the expectations of your coach or your parents or your, your supervisor or whomever it happens to be. And so that kind of perfectionism is actually very, very dangerous. And it has been linked with actual increase in suicidal ideation. So I, I think your, your confidence, it's not that people with who might identify, yes, I know that I, I tend to be more destructive because I'm not into the process of it. I'm just into the task and getting this task done and getting the next task done. It's not that they can't say, I know I have done this well, but they don't stay there anytime. They just, okay, it's on to the next, on to the next. And so there's always this pressure. And as you pointed out and what you said at the beginning, another huge difference is that constructive perfectionism is fueled by curiosity or generosity or creativity or just sort of a Uh, a plentiful sense of spirit where you want to give back or you want to create something that will be helpful to you or your, or others. Whereas destructive perfectionism in the way that I think of it is fueled by this inner self-criticism that often got started way back in childhood. So um, it is a, it is not fueled. You're trying to talk the voices that are in your head, not hallucinatory voices, but the the voices that are in your head saying, you shouldn't be the one who doing, who's doing this. You like the, you know, you don't know what you're doing or like the voice I had in that class. You don't, you're not good enough to be in this class. And so, you know, that those voices are, they are destroyers of confidence. Yes, for sure. So is it that we, we start once those voices are there and, and that try to undermine us and you're not good enough, we try to lift to be, to strive harder, to, to sort of be perfect, to try to 
off balance the, the conversation? Yes. Well, well, we're sort of getting into some of the theory of the book, and I don't know if you want me to do that or not, <laughs> uh, to, to touch on it lightly. Um, when you have this kind of destructive perfectionism, I think, or perfectionism in general, it's it's really an adaptation to a childhood adaptation to some kind of family dynamic or cultural dynamic that has been traumatic or difficult. Uh, you're the star of your family and your family, you know, insists that you continue to be accomplished or you were abused and you were said, I'm the only reason I'm abusing you is because, you know, you're a piece of whatever. Yes, um, yeah. It can come from various and sundry paths. Yeah. So those voices are really often not your own, Jody. They are your mother, your grandfather, your coach, the bully, the, you know, whatever you can hear in your head. Those are those voices. And you're frequently trying to prove them wrong. Yes, all, all the time. And we we all have these voices to a degree. It's the degree of them that we, that we can't. That's right. Understand. That's right. Now, your quote, you quote Brene Brown's definition of perfectionism, which is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought, if I look perfect, live perfectly and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimise the painful feelings of shame, judgment and blame. It can become a painful cycle or immense effort followed closely by intense self-criticism. So how can we tell if we're perfectionists or perfectionistic, or just simply striving for excellence. Well, I, I think what, notice the two words, that's maybe the strongest words she uses, which are addictive and avoidant. You know, that, you, again, you can, well, maybe you can't, because you may be in quite a bit of denial about whatever happened in your childhood that caused this kind of perfectionism to look or be necessary to your emotional survival. But what Dr. Brown is talking about is that this becomes something you cannot help yourself but do. You know, someone who is just a regular old perfectionist, they're going to be able to, I think you mentioned at the beginning, you know, go to the grocery store without any makeup on or, you know, they're going to be able to have things in their life that they don't do well. There's no addiction to looking and being perfect all the time, whereas um, there might be something that a destructive perfectionist might say, oh, you know, I can't tell a joke or, oh, I don't know how to fix, I don't know, some dish. Um, and they can laugh about that. But really, when push comes to shove, there's not too much that they can be found out that they don't do very well. And so how you can tell, I mean, is do you have joy when you do things? Do you, you know, can you say, I, you know, I'm just not going to volunteer for that today. That's really not my, uh, my choice. I, it, it has a sense of choice to it. It's not an addiction. Yeah. Whereas someone, uh, and I, I've determined 10 traits that you can really tell that are sort of in your behaviors that are more about, okay, so these are the things that you're doing. You're always volunteering. You're always worrying and you need a lot of control. Those are the kinds of things you, you're, you don't confide in your friends. You count your blessings all the time. And so you have these behaviors that will certainly will signify to a therapist that there's something wrong, but certainly they may just be, well, that's the way I am. I'm, I'm just, um, I don't talk about my feelings. I don't like to. And yet that is a strategy you've devised. You know, if no one asks you about your feelings, then you decide you don't need to talk about them to emotionally survive. And so, you know, that's the difference because you can trace it back to these childhood adaptations that have become very rigid and very almost like cement. And as uh, Brene Brown says, you, you do it to avoid anxiety. You do it to avoid feeling out of control and it becomes addictive. Yes, absolutely. And I, when you touched on the volunteering thing, worked with a few clients that the pickup for them is that they just can't say no in that, they become this serial volunteering. Mm-hmm. Every time they're asked to do something, they just compelled to say yes. And they get themselves, one woman I'm working with over the past year, just, she's realised that the, the overwhelm that she got herself into, that she wasn't coping with family life and getting the kids to school and this, 
because of the commitments that she made. But the sure. actual steps to go forward for her to just turn that around to start saying no to people was so immense. And it was that what I bet it was think of me and what will what now I'm saying no to doing this. And we, you know, we did and a real sense of guilt or even shame yeah. that that's what's going on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And she would ring me and go, they asked me to, you know, be on this committee. And what do I say? And I said, you say no, <laughs> right? <It> was, <laughs> that was so foreign to her to even do that. We actually had to practice the words sort of no coming out of her mouth. Like, the, mm-hmm. you know, I said, just, you know, order coffee and notice yourself saying no to sugar and like really the <laughs> basics of yeah. just start becoming more okay with standing up for yourself and saying, you know, no, or having those, those clear boundaries. And, and my struggle with that, I think those are wonderful techniques and obviously you're, you're, you do them very well. I do think that people are left with, I I remember a woman that did exactly what you're talking about doing and she was so proud of herself. And she said she got to her car and she was just filled with this shame and this story of how her, and she traced it back to her adoptive parents had always told her that had it not been for them, she would be nothing. And that she needed to always be grateful and to give back because she had been given so much. So all of that dynamic was waiting for her when she actually began to say no. So you can practice the behaviors, but you also are you have to be ready to understand or or confront or work with or manage those feelings that come rushing in when you don't do that behavior. Yeah, Yeah. finding the, the core the core exactly. of where that's come from. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. So many of the clients I work with in coaching tell me that they have a fear of failure and, and this is what they see as stopping them from achieving or even going after what they want. Do you come across this as well? And what connection have you found between fear of failure and the pursuit of perfectionism? Well, I have had a few people say that to me, that they're afraid of doing really well. I heard it a lot more earlier in my career than I hear it now, actually. And I think that's, uh, I don't know exactly why that is, but when you you start talking about a fear of that, that's really about this kind of, I don't deserve this. I don't belong here. I don't, it's, it's got a lot of sense of lack of connection with, you know, they, they're likely reared in homes where they never felt safe. And so to risk, I mean, just think of when you, when you are reared in a home where you feel safe and you make a mistake, someone just says, well, of course you made a mistake. You've got to learn, you know, it's like, that's what, and yet if you grow up in a home where you drop a spoon or you break a glass and you're just pounced on and scorned and said, you're going to pay for that glass. Or, you know, you, you, you have some very abusive punishment as a, as a result, then you learn that failure is unacceptable. Right. So, you know, you can look at it as this kind of fear of failure is, is on, on one level and can be dealt with sort of in a, in a behavioral kind of way of, do you, you know, do you have any evidence that you have failed? Do you, you know, know you're doing well. And so, but you also, I think can look at it on a, on a, not a deeper level, another level Mm -hmm. saying maybe deeper than, and saying, you know, where did you learn that there was such a punitive environment and, you know, how can we help you begin to feel safer? And sometimes that takes quite a bit of work. Yes, absolutely. I worked with a woman um, who'd come in because of perfectly hidden depression. And she used to tell me um, she grew up in a family where, where painful feelings were not allowed to be discussed. Right. And then she'd also had some sexual abuse in college where at that point she said, I will stay in control. And she said, as we were working together, one of the ways that manifested, there were many, but one of them was that she, she was in um, sales and did a lot of, of phone work. And so she would meet weekly with her supervisor and she sort of laughed and she said, you know, 
I always have to know, I write down the questions that I know he's going to ask me. And I'm always have the answer, but I even give him the answer before he asks me the question. (laughs) Because I have to be in control. I can't look like I haven't thought about this. Right. right? And so it's really, and she began to tie in with these issues with looking out of control or being taken advantage of or whatever. And it was such a point when she said, I actually had the telephone call and I waited to hear what he was going to ask. And I trusted that I had the answer rather than going through all these machinations of I've got to make sure I have the answer. Yes. The over-preparation. The, Over-prep. The, the overwhelm before you even get to the... To the yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, in the book, I love that you speak about the distinction between defining slip-ups as failures versus them being just considered part of the process. And I often talk about this with clients. They expect to get things right like the, from the first time. They want to win the first time or they want to get the first job that they go for. And I'm always talking about this being part of the process, like the slip-ups are just part of the game that, you, that you're going to play. So how can we learn to move past this moment of trying to have things perfect or how can we think about this differently? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to sound a little repetitive because I think both, you know, there's the cognitive behavioral way of looking that, at that, which is kind of, all right, what are you telling yourself? What rules are you following? What are you believing? How, is your, how are your thoughts distorted about that? Yeah. Like if I make a mistake or if I have a slip up, I'm going to be fired. Do you really know anybody that was fired that because yeah. they had a slip up, yeah. you know, is that in your reality? And you can have that kind of stance toward yourself or, to, or toward the issue. But again, it it comes back to, I don't feel safe. I can't accept vulnerability. Um, In fact, you know, there's um, research shows that there are three kinds of perfectionism. There's self-oriented perfectionism that's all about demanding perfection from yourself. There's other oriented perfectionism where you you're requiring perfection from other people. And then the most dangerous kind is this socially prescribed perfectionism that is really all about I must always meet and or exceed the expectations of others, not even really having any control over what those expectations are. It's like being on a treadmill and you have no control over the incline or how fast you're going. And so you're constantly feeling like, you know, I can't slip up at something that I have no control over. Well, that's kind of, that's a recipe for disaster and for just hypervigilance and hyperarousal. And I can't have something going on that I'm not aware of and, and be ready for, be prepared for. Sometimes we don't even know people's expectations. That's Right. They, they can tell us they have one expectation, they really have another one. So, you, you know, these people are these more destructive perfectionists or socially prescribed perfectionists. Again, the literature shows that the last group, the socially prescribed, their suicidality is very high and it's the most dangerous kind to have because there's so much pressure. So, you know, that is not building for confidence. You know, when I hang up from this conversation, um, I'm not going to sit around and think, now, how did I answer that? Did I answer that right? And was that the right, was that the right answer to it? And what, what did she really ask me? And, you know, did I repeat myself a lot? And I'm just not going to do that. Yes. Um, there may have been a time in my life when I did, but I don't have that kind of socially prescribed perfectionism. I, I like to do well, but it's based mostly on my own sense of I want to do well for you. I want to talk to your listeners and, and, and help them in any way that I can with whatever wisdom or knowledge I have. And that's where my heart is. My heart is not on, I'm going to answer Jody's question the best way it's ever been answered. (laughs) And then think about it for two weeks. If you didn't think that you did. That's right. And beat myself up totally. Right. I know that sometimes comes up with clients. I remember a lady that kept talking about a presentation she did 18 months earlier. I like, <laughs> And in the end, I said to her, 
Is there anyone else on the planet thinking about your performance in that presentation? No one in the audience is, no one from your bosses weren't, your colleague, nobody on the face of the planet is still concerned about the presentation you did 18 months ago. And it was sort of that realisation that she went, she sort of saw how consuming this was, but she was so nervous about repeating that the same thing. Sure, 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 sure. It was like she kept talking about this presentation from 18 months earlier. I was like, this is... You know, we a question that I like to actually ask myself because I have some particular situations in my life in my life that I actually made quite an ass out of myself. And (laughs) so, you know, (laughs) didn't we all? And and some of them happened far later in my life than I would like to admit. And I will be driving along one day. It'll be a beautiful day and I'm driving to work or I'm driving somewhere else. And and this memory will come to mind and I'll go, oh, God, that was just awful. I can't believe I did that. And the question I've learned to ask myself, is it, is this helpful? Yes. Is this going to make the day I'm living on that day, that Wednesday or Friday or Sunday, or whether it's summer or spring or fall or winter, is this really going to make this day a more productive, healthy day for me? Absolutely. No. No. (laughs) Unless I need to remind myself to not do that again, which I think I'm beyond that. Yes, yes. And so shame, I had a I had a supervisor who said years ago and I really didn't like him. I was studying in Texas and he was really, you know, your stereotypical Texan and he was real brash yes. and kind of I don't know, just really swaggered into the room and and he said shame is a helpful emotion if it lasts for 10 seconds and it leads to a change of behavior. Right. Well, in all my graduate school wisdom, I thought he was wrong. Right. I thought, no, 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 shame is the same thing as a good conscience. Yes, right? right. Well, now I've learned after now 30 years of doing therapy that he's right. Yes. That shame, making yourself a bad person in your own mind because you made a mistake, because you hurt someone or you hurt yourself or you made a fool out of yourself or you you lost a job or you got a divorce or you had an affair or whatever it is. It's not helpful to you now on this day unless you've never changed your behavior, unless you've having serial affairs or, you know, um, then it's it's time to to let it go. Take 10 seconds of shame, learn from it and and move on, really. Yes, exactly. Well, the 10 seconds is probably a little dramatic, (laughs) but I like his point. You know, all the swagger and everything. I like I liked his point. Well, we'll give him some credit, even though he was. Give him, he'd written a really good book, so he deserved a little bit of swagger. (laughs) So I've listened to a couple of episodes of your self-work podcast, which is, you're up to like 230 something, I think. Yeah, 234 or five, something like that. Yeah, so committed. But I love on your your 200th episode, you talked about confronting self-doubt. And when you explained your own moments of self-doubt that arose when writing your book, you had to learn to be okay with writing an imperfect book. And I'll tell you, I had... Exactly, on perfectionism. <laughs> yes. I had exactly the same thing when I wrote my book. And I wonder if most authors do, to be honest, because it's such a process. At some point, I'm sure self-doubt, self-doubt arises But, you know, I had those self-doubt thoughts that, you know, is anyone going to read this or who do I think I am writing a book and all those sorts of things. I had those used, Yeah, I used that the mantra of, you know, nobody can write a book like I can write a book and nobody can say these things the way I can say them. And I really tried to focus on the uniqueness of what I had to say and the way I had to say it. So Mm -hmm. what is your advice about us dealing with and moving on from those those self-doubt thoughts that come up in many areas of our lives? Sure, sure. Well, it sounds like, I mean, you and I handled it very similarly. In fact, I was actually working with an author as a patient at the time, and she kept asking me how the book was going. And she said something very similar to me than, than you came up with yourself. So I got a gift from her. You know, let's not forget that self-doubt can be a good thing. You know, sometimes self-doubt makes you stop and think about what you're doing and and ask yourself some questions. Maybe you're not thinking through this clearly, or maybe, you know, you need to sort of challenge yourself about something. Maybe you're making an error. Maybe you're being 
I don't know if you, I mean, I can be a very impatient person. And sometimes oh, if I kind of, <laughs> if I kind of say, well, wait a minute, am I being impatient here? Or is this me, you know, actually, do I have some reason to feel the way I do that's rational? And so that self-doubt can be your friend, but obviously you don't want to do away with it, but you don't want to be governed by it either. Yeah. And you know, I I was, when I was writing the book, just paralyzed by it. I had spent three or four days just thinking, I can't, I can't do this. And so it was very freeing to just allow it to be. And I think that a sort of a happy marriage is to develop a sense of self-doubt doesn't necessarily, or self-confidence doesn't mean I will never feel self-doubt. Yes. It's not black and white. It's on no. a spectrum. And so you know, you kind of need to listen to when I'm being a little too self-confident. Yes. I think I'm just perfect for this. You know? <laughs> uh, maybe, but yeah, it's, uh, maybe not. And then when you're really, um, when self-doubt is becoming, you know, you're pummeling yourself, you're finding fault, you're, you're not using your rationale to think, well, now, wait a minute, is my own perspective getting in the way here? Do I need to be open to other perspectives or you know, is this, I, I need to let this go and just let this be. So I think it's a conversation you have with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about self-doubt being a question all the time. It's the answer that you give after yeah. the question's fine. It's, you know, should I be doing this? Because sometimes it, you do need to reflect or look and I'm highly impatient as well, which for, for writing books is not conducive. <laughs> so I no. want to finish quicker than a, a book can ever be finished. But yeah, it's that it's the the question of self doubt is fine. It's the answers. If you say, "Oh yes, of course, I can't do this, and I'm terrible," no, right? The answer that you give those questions that makes the difference. I think. You know, I'm sure you found this as well, Jody. I mean, I will say to somebody, "Well, name your strengths." Yes, and they'll just look at me blankly, <laughs> like, "Well, what are you talking about?" <laughs> And I'll say, well, things that you feel competent, you know, within things that you that other people compliment you for things that um, people like you for that. That's the reason why they want you around. And they'll say, oh, well, I guess I'm I can be kind of funny or I fix a great lasagna or something, yes. you know, but they don't really have a whole lot on that list. And I'll you know, I'll say, well, guess what? We've discovered your homework for the day yes. or the week. And because they're so focused on their vulnerabilities or what they feel like they don't do well, that they can't just sort of claim those strengths. And that's very important to do. Yeah, absolutely. Not in a self-centered kind of way, just to know, okay, I've got some, I've got some strengths. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually working, I'm doing a series of workshops at the moment with women, you know, it's put on by a charity. It's a free workshop and we ha we support sort of women escaping domestic violence or trying to rebuild their lives after some sort of trauma, et cetera. And it was one of the parts of it is to help them find a job or, you know, put mm -hmm. a together and things like mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in the workbook, we've got this list of like a hundred words that are strengths that could be strengths, you know. Like, How lovely. I'm confident and I'm productive and I can be, I'm a, you know, nice person and I'm about a hundred on the page. So part of the workshop is for them to go through and actually circle the strengths. And it is, it's so incredible because they just have not looked at, you know, where they do offer something to the world or what they could mm -hmm. offer to a business, you know, well, I'm a hard worker or, you know, they, they're so focused on, I don't have any skills or I can't apply for this job. Cause I, one lady was, she's in her mid fifties and she's like, I, I can't use the computers, but she'd circled I'm a quick learner. So we did told, you know, that she could, she, so, but she was going now into writing, you know, applying for jobs, knowing that she was a quick learner, that she could, yes. she couldn't master, you know, she didn't know a lot about the computers, but she, she knew she could work it out. And that changed, it changes their perception because they've been probably spent years, maybe even longer looking at what they're not and sure. just those simple things of looking at what you are and what you do sure. offer 
makes mm-hmm. such such a big difference. It's been. This reminds me of a story of a woman that I had worked with who had been at the battered women's shelter, and I'll never forget her, her name was Michelle. This was years ago, and she had left her husband. She'd gotten a job. She'd done all these things that he had told her she would never be able to do. Yes. But she came in one day and she said, "Margaret, I still don't feel." I I think he's right. I still beat myself up every day. And I said, okay, so tell me what, when these thoughts come and she goes, Oh, I know exactly when they come. I walk into my apartment and I reach to turn the light on, on the wall. And once again, I remember I have never changed the light bulb. And I said, okay, so you tell yourself I'm a complete and utter failure and I'm trying to fumble around in the dark and I can't see. I said, okay, so do you have a light bulb? No. Do you know where you can buy a light bulb? Yes. Do you have a ladder? My neighbor has one. I said, okay. So can you plan to ask your neighbor for the ladder? Yes. And we planned out these very specific steps and gave her times and dates to do them in. And she was laughing when she came back. She goes, why did you make me wait? And I said, because I wanted you to savor this idea that you could do something about these feelings. Well, sure enough, she changed the light bulb. And she walked in and she said, why was I letting that light bulb convince me that my ex-husband was right? You know, what about that darn light bulb was, you know, it just brought out all this sense of fear that and all I had to do was really sit down and think about it pragmatically and figure out what I was what I could do. And so we worked on some other things. And sometimes it's you know, sometimes it's about the root cause and sometimes it's just about looking at the pragmatics of what needs to happen and, and just finding the determination to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, our conversation has been so great today and I'm sure our listeners will get so much because this, this whole concept and perfectionism and self-doubt and all these topics are something we, so many of us deal with or come face to face with in our lives. So now we're moving on to our Rise Women final questions we ask okay. all our guests so dr margaret what do you yes, wish ma'am. every woman knew i wish everyone knew not to be afraid of aging as i oh. admitted at 66 years old now i'll be 67 in october i was anorexic when i was younger i Uh, Now I see, though, that young women are getting Botox when they're 25 and getting plastic surgery on everything from their boobs to their thighs to their, you know, to their faces. And it's just this phobia about age. And um, I've had a few procedures here and there just to make me feel better. But I really, you, you gain a lot with age and yeah, I can't walk by a table of 40 year old men anymore and, you know, get any attention, but that's about my sexuality. Yes. You know, I can walk by a table of 80 year old men and they go, Hey, hey, you know, <laughs> but really when you begin to think my physical appearance, um, who I am, so many women are scared of that. Yes. And, um, I, I would wish that every woman wouldn't be quite so scared. Yes, wouldn't that be, would change the world a lot, the dynamic going on. Be incredible. What is your superpower, Dr. Margaret? Laughter. I did not, I did not have any hesitation when I thought laughter has gotten me through some of the worst situations. I, I don't have as good a sense of humor as my dad, but I'm very similar to his sense of humor. And uh, my mother had no sense of humor. So I'm so glad (laughs) I'm not like her. Uh, And I I can, and I married a really funny guy and we laugh a lot. And so uh, it has saved my my life many times just being able to laugh at myself to laugh at life to laugh at um you know sometimes the laughing is a little bitter and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's poignant but laughter is definitely a superpower yes and probably the best botox you'll ever get probably yeah (laughs) (laughs) now are you a hippie 
heels or flats, lady? We all we always. Oh, I was just telling someone that in college I wore high heels to to class every day, and you know I was I was just I was mimicking all the social um, uh, the the people on oh what do they call them Uh, soap operas soap operas, and um, uh, and I'm not exactly flats, I but I'm a boot girl. I'm a I'm a slow heel. I'm a low heeled boot kind of woman. Yes. Okay. Very good. I love it. Your favorite quote or rule to live by? Mm, I loved this thing that she was my pseudo grandmother and she said so many things. She, one of the things she said was after 80, it's the most important thing you need to do is get out of bed. And after 90, what you need to do is go in the bathroom, look at yourself in the mirror and smile and say, good morning, whoever you are. (laughs) I love it. So I think a lot of things she said, she used to say also, I can work my plan, but I, no, I can plan my work, but I can't work my plan. So I, I love that one too. Yeah, yeah. She was full of wisdom. Oh, good. Love it. Who inspires you and why? She did. Yes. Um, she, her name was Et. And when I met her, her grandson had died by suicide about three or four months earlier. Her husband had we think died by suicide. Her son had died by suicide. So there's a lot of depression in her family. And she was one of the most caring, loving, giving people that I'd ever met. And I kind of slipped into her life and she was 60 years, my senior. And, and she didn't die until she was 104. So she, she was there for me and I hopefully was there for her and I want to be just like it. I really try to emulate her. And then I'm lucky enough to also have another woman in my life, my aunt gay, that's very similar to it. And they're just, they're very resilient and yet they're not, um, they've had a lot of loss and yet they've just woven it into the tapestry of who they are and they have not let it control them. Yes. Wonderful. Oh, since chills up my spine. It's lovely. I'm very lucky to have those kinds of models. Yeah, it's good. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Margaret, for sharing your insights and your stories. I know you help so many people. Your book is fantastic. We will put the link to your book through our show notes. um, Thank you so much. Because I know it's something that a lot of people will want to read or go into that, the perfectly hidden depression area to see what they can learn and whether they need to maybe take some different steps the next stage to heal themselves more. And well, I'll be very, very honored. And, and if they do, and certainly I've, I've heard from people from all over the world who have tell me that. And, and of course I'm not hearing from the people who kind of go, eh. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) That's okay. But you know, I, I know, I I will tell you this one last story last May. uh, So just uh, what, 13 months ago, I got a call from some people who are now my friends, two women in Florida, the state of Florida, who said, um, we reached out to you because one of our friends died by suicide about three months ago. And she looked very successful and had children and all this kind of thing. And at the funeral, her husband came up to me and said, this was the book on her nightstand. And it was my book. And I just got so tearful and I thought, gosh, how can I make that not happen anymore? And I can't make it not happen, but I can, I so appreciate being on shows like yours that are helping me get the message out. And you're obviously already very aware of the issue. So that's wonderful too. And I just, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate being here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for everything. I'm sure, as I said, I'm sure our listeners will get get so much and find their way to your books and your information if that's if that's what they need at the time. It's sure. like putting it out and knowing that it will find the people who are ready to, to find the information. So thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening today. And remember, there are so many ways that we can help you become the confident woman you've always wanted to be. So please get in touch with us or visit risewomen.com. We are on a mission to ensure that confidence is every woman's new normal. And we do that by getting our programs and resources out to as many women as possible. So until next time, remember, with confidence, anything is possible. Bye-bye for now.